do you know how hard it was for me to finally ask that question? You know, try to inch around, do I have PTSD? And it wasn't that I wanted to hear that I didn't have it. I, I was more afraid that you would tell me that I didn't have it than I did have it because then it would further ingrain my diagnosis as a kid that I was a fucked up and broken person. And so by hearing that I had this, then it became more tangible. It became more real. It became not an inherent badness and brokenness of me. It was something else that I could then read about and learn about and understand a little bit more. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest today is Jackie Fott. She's the author of PTSD Raw and Real, a reason for hope and motivation to fight on. Jackie is raw and Jackie is real. And this episode is filled with reckoning and repair and reflection and a whole lot of deep connection. So join us in the Trauma Hiders Club today. Pull up a chair. You've got a seat at the table. Thanks for coming in. Jackie, I'm so glad you're here. Glad to be here. Yeah. So here you are on the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. What do you want to hide the most right now? You know, Karen, I have evolved into being a fairly open book. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a long time to get here, but I don't know that I have anything that jumps out that I want to hide right now. Ooh, I love that. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump in. You came to me through a, a previous guest, Reverend Rachel Hallander. And she said, Karen, you've got to meet Jackie. You've got to talk with Jackie. She's got to be on the show. So I'm curious, Jackie, why trauma and why now? I met Rev. Rachel at, uh, at Ursuline College. We are classmates and I've really connected with her. Uh, we are both in the Masters of Theology and Pastoral Care program. And in our dialogue in that, I, I always tie back to my lived experiences. You know, faith is a big part of my life, but my lived experiences and my trauma and everything I've gone through is so instrumental to who I am and how I present myself to the world. 
And so it's, it's an essential part of me. It's, it's part of my makeup. And, you know, sometimes people are uncomfortable hearing about it, but I just think it's so important. I feel like I'm a miracle that I've gotten this far and I want to be a witness to what I've experienced. Mm. So you want to be a witness to your own experience. I want to be a witness to my own experience, but also to sit and, and, and be with others and, and be yeah. willing to, to, to meet them where they're at and be part of their journeys, whether it's for a moment in passing or, or for longer periods, depending on the type of relationship. But I, I really think by being willing to be vulnerable and being willing to, to present yourself as you really are and to stop hiding, I hid for so many years to not to stop hiding. I think by being brave and being vulnerable, it helps other people be brave and be vulnerable. Yeah. Right. It's that embodiment, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a book, PTSD, Raw and Real, A Reason for Hope and Motivation to Fight On. And it's a beautiful and meaningful title. But for now, we're going to refer to it as PTSD, Raw and Real. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's great. Okay. What is the reason for hope and motivation for you? You know, I, I fought for most of my life Mm. to just survive. And as I was working in therapy uh, and it was all in conjunction with my mom being ill. And as I, I, I dug in, I was worried about whether or not I would be able to continue to survive after I lost my mom. And really one of my main motivations for going in and digging into this work and to stop running and stop escaping and stop hiding from the things that, you know, I used to take my trauma and and push it into a corner of my soul and box it there and then survive. And then it would seep out and and I would spiral out of control. And my mom was a, a person who was a big cheerleader. You know, I was... I didn't feel that I was worthy or or whatever. And so she would cheer me up and boost me on so I could hold on. And, and my fear was, is I wouldn't be able to survive when I lost her. She had ALS and so there was no cure. So I knew it was inevitable that I would lose her. And so that title is me working through and finding that hope and that motivation to, to keep fighting mm. And to be able to, to have a map, it's my roadmap to the miracle of repairing my soul and, and to have that there to know that I could survive on my own. Well, who or what were you surviving from? So I um, am a survivor of extended childhood sexual abuse. Mm. It started from when I was uh, around seven until 13 and you know, I, I blocked it all out and mm-hmm. it all came uh, flooding back into my life as a 16 year old. Um, and I, I spiraled out of control and my mom got me connected with the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. And so I did a first round of healing from when I was 17 into my early 20s, uh, 16, 17 into my early 20s. And I always say that that first round of healing was taught me enough to survive. And then when my mom got sick and, you know, I did okay for the first two years of her illness, my, my father-in-law had ALS and then my mom was diagnosed with ALS and they overlapped for about six weeks. And then my father-in-law died and it was, you know, having the same disease and, and, you know, I knew what we were going into. He had it for just short of or around two years. Uh, my mom ended up having it for four years. 
but going into that period, I did okay to start, but then I started deteriorating and falling apart. And I, it was, I couldn't disappear. I would miss the last years of, of my time with her. And so I said, the time is now you gotta, you gotta dig in and do this work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so the second time was really when I went from surviving to really getting into that next level of healing and, and not just having the tools to, to survive, but to really start to be able to thrive again, to reclaim my life and to find my voice and, you know, really dig in and look at the the details of, of what happened and to be able to work through it and to reclaim who I was. Yeah. How beautiful it is that your mother was in your corner, supporting you, encouraging you to connect with the rape crisis center and you getting some healing and help there. What did it take for you to open up enough to receive the support at that next level? It's funny. So like I, my mom helped me get support at at that first level and I hated going with her. So yes, she was supportive and she was supportive, but yet there was also a lot of misunderstanding of an awkwardness about not really being able to, to talk to me about it or me not wanting to hear her talk to me about it. You know, that was some of that hindsight and that beautiful support of her came later. You know, you don't appreciate it in, in the moment. And, and I, when she would take me, I was a minor when she first took me and I would hate going with her because I felt so exposed and I felt mm-hmm. that she could see my badness, but you know, they found like a bottle of liquor or something in my room. And so it was like either be grounded for the rest of my life or say what happened. And it's funny when I first told them, I didn't even have to tell them who it was. She knew. And then mm. she my brother, he knew. So there was warning signs and there was things there, but, but, you know, it's, you know, so many times we don't lean into those uncomfortable things where we don't dig a little deeper. And so all these years go by, go by. And so she, yes, she was my biggest cheerleader, but yes, there was also a lot of underlying resentment and, and feeling like she never really saw me. She saw who I, who she wanted me to be, mm-hmm. um, but you know, maybe not who I really was. And so what got me to that next level of healing was finally letting go of needing her to see me. And it, I, it's funny, I had two different therapists suggest that I write a letter to my mom, even if I never shared it to her to get some of that resentment out. And so when you have a mom who's dying and, beca- you know, losing more of her physical capabilities, she ultimately ended up being uh, almost a, a quadriplegic. So she required a, a lot of care and, and became more and more demanding in her care that I needed, you know, having you carried such guilt, that resentment was building up, that anger was building up, that trauma was mm-hmm. resurfacing. And so it was, it was a converging of trying to not explode. Yeah. So I, I wrote this letter and I let go of her needing to be able to see me mm. and the funny thing about this. So I write this letter, which I never ended up sharing with her, but it allowed, you know, and it's funny, you think in, in your head, what you're going to write and what comes out on paper is often totally different. And I actually share the letter I wrote to her in my book, but by, by letting go of her need to see me and that expectation, it actually allowed us to find healing and to find connection and to uh, eventually get to the point where she could see me. And by the time she passed away leading up to that, 
I was able to share with her what I was going through in therapy and talk about it. And I was, I, you know, I got to a point where I couldn't do her care anymore. I said, I need to take care of me. I'm melting down. They, I was in therapy for nine months and they didn't even know. I didn't share that I was back in therapy with them. And so it came to a head and she held on to help me get to a point that she knew I would survive and be okay. It was unbelievable and it was beautiful and it was heartbreaking, but you know, those were terribly hard years, but they were also the best years of my life because I finally got to be real in front of my mom and to not hide anymore, to not pretend. It was awesome. Wow. That is, that's something both your own strength, right? The survivor in you. The one thing that we know about people like us surviving childhood abuse the subsequent PTSD, um, actually, maybe not everyone, but the navigator and the, the hider, right? That's why this is called Trauma Hiders Club, is we do such a good job of looking strong. And then to have somebody on the other side who's also hanging on. Yeah. Wow. It's like a craft. You become so skilled at it that you right. don't know that you are. So this is, so one of the things that really led to me being able to see this as my, and I, I, as my mom became more and more limited in her capability and requiring more and more help, her body was becoming numb. Mm. And, and when I went back to the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center for the second time, they had you do like these three body things and say, okay, here's who you are. Here's who you were in the past. Here's who you are now. And here's who you want to be in the future. These skeleton of people. And you have to mm -hmm. write words in there of what you were. And, you know, my past was numb. And I found this weird connection with my mom as I'm watching her become physically numb, realizing how numb I was and how much I how much all these borders and parameters and restrictions and things I couldn't do, couldn't say the word rape, couldn't go certain places, couldn't say certain names, couldn't do this, couldn't do that, that you put all these parameters around to not trigger yourself. And then you be you start living a half life and then exactly. a quarter life and then hardly a life. And how so in my my three people, I was numb and I related that really I could see it physically in my mom as she was becoming more and more numb and how I was going to a part of thawing, leaning into therapy, starting to do the work, really looking at it and thawing and wanting to get to a point where I could feel again mm. and, and reclaim my life. And so it was just, it was really weird. It was a, a I, I did a lot of journaling and, and I, I wrote about that and it was just, a, it, they were so different, but yet I could see, you know, I needed to she needed to be fed, clothed. She, if we were crying, she couldn't even lift her hand up to wipe her own tear, you know, and, and that need for support. She 24 seven needed support to survive. And so I started allowing myself to say, Jackie, you need help and it's okay to reach out for help. And it allowed me to, to lean into that when I never let myself, it was a failure or a weakness, or it was something you wanted to hide. And, and it, it allowed me to overcome that barrier. Yeah, I so hear that, especially the allowing yourself, the being vulnerable enough to let someone in to help. Because if they get close, at least this is my story, if I ask for help, someone will get close to me and they will see the broken filth piece of shit that I am. That's right. 
I don't want to show you who I am. You'll see the badness in me and you won't want to be around me. Not only that, I don't want to expose you to my badness. I don't want to hurt you because I'm, I, not only will you see it and want to run away from me, but I don't want you to see it because I don't want to hurt you because I see myself as bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's that rage. There's such rage. And shame. And shame. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious. So you leaned in on the, on the rape crisis center and you found therapists along the way. What would you say was the thing or the support that opened you up the most to your wholeness? It's a couple of things. I think one critical thing when I first went back the second time was my therapist said to me, Jackie, I can only go so far. I can go 50%, but you got to go the other 50%. You know, a lot of times we want to go to therapy, or at least maybe in my mind, you want to go to therapy and you want them to fix you. But and I found that the work that it, it was really more 80% me, 20% them. They're mm -hmm. guiding you with their sitting witness to you. But that that ownership that I got to own this, I got to show up. And if I, if I don't bring my troubles to them, they... I can't work through them. Um, and so what I started to do was I started to journal when I was having an episode, because sometimes once you're out of the, the, the moment of trying to just survive, then you don't even want to go back there. But I started journaling through it and reading what I was writing so that when I was in a session with my therapist, I was really presenting the real struggles I was having instead of, you know, I get there and then I, you know, I clam up and I don't share. Um, so it held me accountable um, and I did individual therapy at the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. And then, you know, I did that for a stretch of time. And then I went into an outside person for individual therapy, but they invited me into an alumni group, mm. which is a, a support group with other survivors. And the interesting thing, it's, I think it's a fairly, not a common thing. It was a group of survivors of both men and women. And I was abused by a older boy who lived in our, in, in the area where I grew up. Uh, and so I had an aversion to men mm -hmm. and, and uh, trust issues with them. I got married young. And so I was good with my husband and he helped heal a lot of those issues, but were, or helped me live through it. But having men in the group and, but, and having men and women and us starting to talk about our experiences and support each other, it was a monthly meeting and we would go and you could check in and then talk about the things you were struggling with finding the commonalities you, you know, and having these conversations about things that you thought were like weird and made you bad and poisonous and seeing that other people also went through it and being able to find laughter in it and, and humor. And, you know, we would always talk about like how, Hey, do you, you know, save your voice message or voicemail from your therapist so you can hear their voice. So when you're in crisis, you can listen to their voice mm. and be comforted. You know, you think you're a little bit psycho when you, <laughs> you know, share some of those things, but it, getting that connection with other people allowed you to gain confidence in my own experiences and reduce the shame of being able to speak my truth. Yeah. Really nice. So that was really, really essential going through the process of being able to talk to an individual and then to a group of people, and then to start going out publicly. That was all part of my path to wholeness. Hmm. When you say you went out publicly, does that, do you mean just experiencing the world or were you publicly speaking about your experiences? So when I decided to publish my book, so my mom had died at the end of 2014 
And the following summer, this book just roared out of me mm-hmm. in three weeks. It just, I, it was like, I, it was a year or two after um, Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus and uh, Michelle Knight. That was something that really triggered me uh, and really sent me into a downward spiral. And it took me two years to even be able to read their stories. So they were very integral when I finally got to the point that I could read their stories. And I wrote a reflection. My therapist said, write a letter to them. And so I wrote a reflection on it, which was basically the foundation of this book. And I, I expanded on on my reflection, which is is like the last chapter in the book. I get to the point in the summer of 2015 where I could read their books and then it just stirred up so much in me and it allowed me to channel and find words that I could never find words to. So then I, I write this, this book and I waffle, should I, should I publish it? But going through the process of deciding, do I want to make my story public? was when I really started to actually put my name and my voice and my story together in a public way. And when I was going through the process of trying to figure out how I was gonna publish it and what I was going to do, they said, you can use a, a, a pseudo name. You don't mm-hmm. have to put a name on it. And it was so critically important for that shame piece for me to have my name and my story together. It was essential, but I had to baby step it. So I first did like a speaking event. The Cleveland Rape Crisis does a sing out event every other year. Yes. And so the first time I I did a video for one of their, their events, I think it was 2016. And that was really the first time my name and my face and my story all came together. And I've I built on it from there where I do different speaking engagements for the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center or the Ohio Lions Den Sexual Violence or or different ones, really to just put my story out there and to exactly what you're doing, start normalizing the conversation about trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard. What I'm experiencing from you, Jackie, is this evenness and this wholeness and strength and at the same time, the vulnerability and a incredible willingness to connect with people who are just like us because they're everywhere. And what I'm hearing and what I'm imagining as you were speaking was this, I saw like you and a thread to the universe right? So you as a conduit to people who have stories of brokenness and filth and badness and all of the things that they call themselves and your story as potentially that lifeline. That's the real shit there, Jackie. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It's so funny. You know, I used to identify as a, a, a victim. Mm-hmm. Think of yourself, you know, you, I, I think of myself, I'm Jackie and I'm a victim of child sexual abuse. And then I start thinking as I go through some of these things, I'm Jackie and I'm a survivor mm-hmm. of, of sexual abuse. And then it's, you know, I'm Jackie and I'm starting to thrive as a survivor of sexual abuse. And I was in a, a spirituality and ministry class last semester and we were working on social location and trying to, I, you know, write the different things about who we are. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. It was the first time I just thought of myself as Jackie. Yes. Isn't that amazing? And it was like, it was like mind blow. Like, oh my God, I, you know, I, it's not that the brokenness isn't there. It's just the acceptance that it's a part of me is yeah. there. Yes. 
And that's a part of my whole being and I'm okay with it. And it was a long time coming. And I, my story is hard. You know, if someone picks up my book and they read my story, it's hard, but I look at it and I think it's so beautiful because I know how I feel inside and how totally different I feel than I used to. Mm, So nice. What a beautiful life, right? Yeah. Where can we find your book? So it's on Amazon. Oh, nice. Look it up. I don't know if it's on other ones too. I, you know, it's funny. My book is, I think my story is beautiful. I also think that it could be triggering because mm-hmm. it's, I call it PTSD raw and real. It's funny. My brother and I had a conversation. We we're talking about, we've lost loved ones. And we were talking about a professor of ours who was near death. And my brother went and saw me. He's like, Jackie, I had all these things in my mind that I wanted to say, but when I was in front of him, it came out so garbled and so imperfect. And I named my book PTSD Raw and Real because it's the real deal. Mm -hmm. It's what I experienced. It's my journal entries. It's raw and it's hard, Um, but it's also beautiful. Um, And I have trouble marketing or talking or pushing my book. I like to make it available. So it's there. But if someone's not ready to go there, it could be a hard book to read. And so um, it's on Amazon. I make it available. Anybody who wants to talk about it or wants to know where it is, I, I do it. But I, it's really hard. I don't know how to find the balance. It's hard for me to push because I don't, like you said, there's people like us everywhere. And you don't know where they are in their process. And I do think it could be a lifeline. It could be, it's my story, but it's it's a true witness of of going through that process and coming out on the other side and experiencing wholeness that I thought I would never be able to experience. But, you know, you, you have to be ready for it because it's, it is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember somebody recommended the book, the body keeps the score. Uh Uh-huh. Have you read it? I think I have actually. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but it doesn't matter. The body keeps the score. Karen, you've got to read this book for me and pretty deep into my therapy, my healing, the, I'm telling you every, (laughs) it was like a textbook of trigger. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I looked it up. I I have read it. You know how there are like self-help books that are, you know, kind of a pleasure to read Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I could do, I don't know. I, I could remind myself that I'm a beautiful whole person and write myself a note on the mirror or write in the mirror and lipstick. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> making that up. This shit, this, <laughs> I'm not saying the body keeps score is shit, but the, but what happened, the experience I had, and this was by the way, only a few months ago, I was like, wait, this is a book that one isn't for everyone. And also like, should not even be recommended as some kind of self-help light reading. The way it was recommended to me was like, oh, have you read The Body Keeps the Score? You should check that out because it's really, it's a great book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because the hypervigilant human in me didn't say, what did you like about it? What did you get out of it? Why are you recommending it to me? I was just like, check, yes. It's funny though. I read tons of books and that was a book. I, I read, I even read books that 
therapist would read so I could try and better understand mm-hmm. the role of a, a client therapist relationship because you'd leave the thing and then you start your mind starts getting crazy like okay well they don't like me they don't call me back and then you have to realize okay we're not supposed to be friends this is how the relationship's supposed to work it's a healthy relationship it's quit spinning it into something that it's not Jackie because <laughs> you're not the worst person in the world and they're really not thinking about you as much as you think they are, you know? And so I had to, you know, I had to learn to have the appropriate relationship and be okay with that and not let that trigger me. But, you know, that's the concern with my book is, you know, I, I, me, when I was able to read some of the people's actual story, their narrative, it allowed me to find words that escaped me. You know, you have these body memories and these smells and these, these visual triggers but, you know, with PTSD, it's hard to find the words to actually narrate it. And so stories, when I was finally able to sit with someone else's story, it helped me find the words that eluded me for so long to narrate my own story. But I do think you have to get to a point where you have the support around you, mm-hmm. uh, therapy, family, whatever your support network is, because you're digging into some deep shit and you and it's hard. And when you read you know, there used to not be a lot out there. And I, I read and I read and I read, I read all sorts of different things, just digging for information to try and understand what the hell is going on in my life. I didn't even know what PTSD was mm-hmm. until after my first round of six, seven, eight years of healing. I didn't even know what it was. And I, remember I, I used to, and this is weird, but I used to Google my therapist that I had at the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center and read articles that she wrote. And I was reading an article that she, cause she had moved on. I was reading an article that she wrote about PTSD and veterans. I'm like, I wonder if that's what I have. Mm. I wonder, you know, and then I'm piecing it all together, but nobody really talked to me about it or explained it. And ironically, just in January, my therapist just recently published a book called Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Art Therapy by Dr. Amy Bacos. And I read it, looked her up. I had a weird connection through Ursuline that they were somehow connected uh, and I looked it up and I read it and it's like the book that I would have needed all those years. So I, to start with now, I agree. Same thing with you. You got to have support in place because it could be triggering, but it laid out and explained things. I'm like, oh, that answered that question. That answered that question. Oh, that explains this. So this is validating here. So I would think some of those books that kind of explain trauma and aren't a, a pers- as personal of a story, but explain what's happening to piece things together are good for maybe earlier in the the process of healing. And my book would be uh, one that would come into play as you were getting into that process, uh, that second stage of therapy or whatever, where you're starting to narrate your own story and finding connection there. Yeah. Uh, If you read it too early, it, it it could be overwhelming. Yeah. But that's what makes it real. <laughs> right, right, right. You it, no apologies. It, the, the, it's the story that had to be written. It's the story you had to write. And you know what? It's one of those things when I look at it, people ask, like, you know, do, do you push it or how do you do this? And you know, I don't need to do any of that because it it is priceless to me because it helped me get to where I was. And if I can help one person by sharing my story, you know. I, I put it out there, but it really, it was, it was life-saving. I had to get it out into the world and out of me. I had to quit carrying it inside of me and put it out there. And then I could start, and then it no longer weighs me down, mm-hmm. but I needed. And when I struggle, sometimes I go, I used to, when, after I wrote it, I would read it every week. 
And then I read it every few weeks and then every few months. And I slowly, and now I don't have to read it anymore. Mm. But I had to read it over and over again, just to like, this really is your story, Jackie. Holy cow. <laughs> and it's part of that integration, integrating it into my being. Right. Yeah. I totally feel that. Um, yeah. That, that integration thing it's right. We're so good at, com at compartmentalizing our lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, Oh no, no, actually I can, I can keep that experience, that childhood experience over there. And I'm just going to show up over here in a completely different way. Right. And that's how you become a fragmented and broken person because it's, it's over there and it's not really me, you know? Right. I know it's me when I'm in the middle of struggle. I know it's my story, but I want to make it not mine. I so badly want this to not be my reality. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when I heard you, um, to hear you talk about PTSD, I, it wasn't until, I think it was 2021 where I actually heard that diagnosis for me. And I was like, holy shit. I never, I thought only veterans got it. Like how could, how could the, and of course, right. The more I dug in as well, the more I dug in, it made complete sense. Yeah. So interesting. It's funny though. Like in therapy, it's not something that I, I, I don't know what your experience was, but I, it wasn't something that we talked about. No, you know, in, in my sessions or it was a formal thing and it's, you know, so I diagnosed myself this, but really I, I diagnosed myself as a nine-year-old as being fucked up. That was my diagnosis of myself. And I finally asked my therapist, like, hey, you know, do you think that I may have PTSD? You know, I so, but I said, what do you think I'm dealing with here? Mm -hmm. And she, you know, is, you know, and I, I, I love this and hate this, hated this about my therapist. She would always turn that question around. And back sure. And, well, what do you think you're dealing with, Jackie? I'm like, well, I think I'm fucked up. You know, that was my diagnosis. And she's like, well, I went to, to school and that, you know, I never heard that term. And I got. <laughs> pissed. I was pissed. And it was right at the end of the session and I shut down and I, I went home and this, I was so angry. And I, I, I have a chapter titled in my book, pissed off at my therapist. And I wrote a letter to her and I went back and I read it to her and how that was invalidating. I said, do you know how hard it was for me to finally ask that question? You know, try to inch around, do I have PTSD? And it wasn't that I wanted to hear that I didn't have it. I, I was more afraid that you would tell me that I didn't have it than I did have it because then it would further ingrain my diagnosis as a kid that I was a fucked up and broken person. And so by hearing that I had this, then it became more tangible. It became more real. It became not a brokenness and inherent badness and brokenness of me. It was something else that I could then read about and learn about and understand a little bit more. Um, so that was it, but nobody ever. So finally she shared that. But the, the first time I, I actually saw it formally diagnosed, I went to a psychiatrist because I was getting on medication. And of course she didn't tell me anything of my diagnosis. And I went to then a gynecologist uh, a few months later and I get like my write out and in there it says, you know, post-traumatic stress, general anxiety, mm. disorder, panic disorder. I'm like, you, you think somebody would have told me, you know, I have to find, I read it in this report. Like what the heck? That's incredible. That's actually how I heard the PTSD. I saw it written down. Of yourself? Like nobody actually said the words to you? They, nobody said that. Nobody said it. Like nobody said it. Yeah. And then I said, well, wait a minute. This says PTSD. And sure enough, 
she said, yeah, like as if we'd already established that, established that, or that I've known it all, you know, I've known it for the vast majority of my life that that's what I have. <laughs> Isn't that, I, I had the same experience and I'm like, you know, and that's why I think these types of conversations are so important because People are, I don't know if they're uncomfortable talking about it or that you don't want to focus on it or whatever, but for me, it was liberating. It was liberating and it was like, okay, this is really hard, but yet it set me free on a different course. Start looking at it differently. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So I, I, I get it, you know, I don't know. And that was one of the things that this, this book that uh, Dr. Backos wrote is, 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 having a more open dialogue around some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I do think that that's really important. And it's not something that, from my experience, was was done well. Right, right. That's, you know, that's my mission, right? Normalize the conversation. Normalize the conversation around trauma. It is all around us. Granted, maybe the vast majority of us are not walking around with PTSD, but it's everywhere. So let's acknowledge uh, Jackie, I'm curious, what haven't you told us that you think we should know? Let me re- let me organize my thoughts here because I did I did just have a thought which ties into this. As we talk about normalizing the conversation around trauma and that everybody around us has it, one of the things that was really important to me, I, I read this article um, uh, about new normal and how sometimes you have builders and firefighters in your life and that you have different people who fill different roles in your life. And one of the things that I really had to learn is like, I always thought I had to be everything to my mom when I was caring for her and I had to, I had to do it all and that she should have done it all for me. And so that created these, these unrealistic expectations on our relationships that were not human. They were beyond, they were superhuman, you know, expectations that, when I started level setting my expectations that, you know, my mom, my husband, my brother, they can't satisfy all the needs that I have, whether it be just my normal needs as a human being or my needs in my trauma support um, and in my healing work, that realizing that other people have trauma and that when I'm interacting with them, that a lot of times their reaction to maybe me trying to tell my story is probably most of the time about their own, where they are in their own life and not about me Mm -hmm. Um, and making that space for the human reality that we're all carrying a whole bunch of shit around. And, and I may need you to do something, but you may not be able to. And and, And having more realistic expectations on relationships, it allowed me to create forgiveness towards myself when I couldn't be somebody to somebody else because of my own trauma. And that, you know, I can't go to a baby shower because I ended up not having kids and I can't do that. And giving myself the space to not be able to show up because it was too triggering for me, realizing that other people have those same experiences. And so when they tell me no, or they can't do something, it's not necessarily about my badness. It's about where they are in their own journey and making Mm -hmm. space for each other in this process and and helping people where we can and then forgiving ourselves when we can't. That was such an essential thing to having healthier relationships, setting healthy boundaries, being able to say, I always say, I never, I didn't learn how to say no until I was 34. Mm, Yeah. All those things were so important to having a healthier relationship with myself and more realistic and healthy relationships with others. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Really nice boundary setting. So not 
in the trauma experience, right? Yeah, really nice work. What are you most excited about in your world? I always say I have a a career and I, I, I love my career, but I also have this life work. And I feel like sharing my story, doing this master's program, I don't know where I'm gonna go with that. I am most passionate about just being authentic, having deep and real conversations and watching myself grow and helping watch other people grow and being witness to that. I don't know exactly where I will end up, but I'm I'm so excited about learning more about my faith and maybe ways I could get involved in ministry in some way and, and seeing where that might lead me. But I'm, I'm most passionate about people who struggle with grief and trauma or and things and trying to help people grow and find themselves. Mm. I don't know where that will lead me. I, I'm a, a few years out. So right now I'm in a discovery phase and a learning phase. And I'm, I'm just excited to see where I end up. I always say, I try to keep myself healthy enough and in, in right relationship with my, myself and in a healthy place so that when I'm asked to do something that I am in a, a healthy place to be able to say yes. Nice. That's, that's cool. Just the openness, right? The yeah. openness, the willingness and the curiosity. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I was a perfectionist and one of my healing or one of my, my mechanisms for survival was being, trying to be perfect and everything and being a workaholic and, and getting achievements. And so backing away from that and showing up each day, authentically working hard and then playing and resting in mm. myself space, that balance, that life balance is, is so essential to who I am today. And so that openness and not having to have a plan for it all is important for me to have a healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. The okayness of being where we are currently, right? Like I'm okay being here and not always looking over there. And I'm okay in the, this journey of discovery. I don't have to have the master plan. I believe the master plan is, is connected to the control that we want in the universe when we're unhealed. And the okayness of where the road takes me is the road. Yeah. Yeah. Control is such an uh, interesting word because you really have to, you know, I really had to learn to let go of control. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Be okay with where I'm at. You know, you with, with trauma and PTSD, you spend a lot of time living, reliving the past moments. And so just being able to be present. And then on the other side of that, being such a planner and having to have control of my future, I got to plan, 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 plan. So I can control how everything goes. It's, it's so limiting. And so I, I work really hard to try and stay present and just see where it takes me and to stay healthy in this moment. And to be witness, to just be true to myself. Yes. Okay. With that. Yeah. Scars and all. Yeah. Scars and all. Exactly. Scars and all knowing that I'm not great at this. It's a practice to stay in this moment because all of me wants to jump the hell off this ship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know what? Some days we're really good at it. And some days we fall into old, old patterns. And some days we struggle with it. And some days we just downright suck at it. That's right. Okay. Regroup. It's okay. And, And accept it. Except that I needed to be in that space for that time, but I don't need to be there forever. Learning that some of these things, some of these moments are temporary. 
that you, you know, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge that I'm here. I'm stuck today. It's a bad day. I'm going to live through it. I'm going to let myself feel it, be witness to it. And then tomorrow I'm going to be present to hopefully a better day. I love that. That's the experience, right? That's the ride. It, it is a ride and it's yeah. not it's a discipline. It's like a, it's learning to live that way. And it's, it's, that's not automatic. No, no, definitely not. Jackie, I'm curious, what's been most helpful for you as a guest in the Trauma Hiders Club? I think it's always helpful to have conversation and to just talk about it, mm. to just show up and sit with somebody else and grow in relationship, but also to connect in the authenticity of the struggle. Yeah. Yeah, for me. Um, with each guest I have and you being another, not only do I get to witness amazing humans, you being one of them, every time I have a conversation, there's a reminder or a, even a flashing sign that comes up that says, ah, we share this experience. We share this experience, you and I, we share this experience with people in our community, with people all around the world. And every day the sun comes up and the sun sets. And each day we're going to take this and move forward day by day. There's great strength in that. There is. Yeah, it really. Like, it's funny. The, the story that I walked around for the vast majority of my life was like so dark and broken and once I really dug into the work, I was like, damn, this is so much easier. Well, you know, it's when we have these conversations, you know, you say dark, it, I, I, darkness, heaviness. Mm -hmm. it, when you have conversations like this, it makes you feel lighter. Yeah. It makes you feel less alone. And, and it, it, it is all out there. You know, it's everywhere, but, you know, so often we think it'll be easier if I just don't talk about it or if I just don't face it. But really the reality is, is leaning in and talking about it and, and bringing it into the light of day makes it lighter. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I loved having you here, Jackie. Thank you so much for bringing your, your ser serenity, your brilliance, your radiance, and your raw and real truth. And I know that listeners of Trauma Hiders Club will not only benefit from this conversation, but when they're ready, will have a gut-punching and heartwarming read in your book. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing the work that you do and, and bringing this conversation out here because it is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club head over to karengoldfingerbaker.com.